evening, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. And if you don't have the latest issue, there's one for sale. Una will sort you out of the door. Not only that, we have a second one, uh, our latest uh, standalone supplement, A Global History of the Irish Revolution. And both of these are special prices this evening only. Eight euros for the supplement and five uh, for the latest issue of, of History Ireland. Anyway, with the promotion out of the way, let's get down to business here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be in the uh, National Library, our favourite uh, head school venue. And uh, this is part of the One City, One Book, uh, which have, this year is looking at, in fact, more than one books, it's looking at uh, the Country Girls Trilogy uh, by Edna O'Brien. So what we're going to look at here tonight is uh, censorship in Ireland then and now. So to mark the selection uh, uh, this year of Edna O'Brien's Country Girls Trilogy, as Dublin's One City, One Book, History Ireland Head School considers the issue of censorship. Banned on its release in 1960, the Country Girls is often credited with breaking the silence on sexual matters in Catholic Ireland. While by the 1970s such censorship had been considerably relaxed, it was replaced by political censorship in the form of Section 31. That in turn has passed, but we are still left with the censorship of onerous defamation laws, not to mention internet and social media trolling, uh, which has added a new twist to the censorship debate. So to discuss these and related matters, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Kenny, my left here, uh, journalist and author of Goodbye to Catholic Ireland. Uh, and then just beside Mary, we have uh, Donald Fallon, uh, one of the editors of the, uh, the excellent uh, Come Here To Me blog. Donald is also uh, curating uh, an exhibition in Dublin City Libraries, uh, Pier Street Donald, isn't it? Uh, on, the, on the question of censorship, again as part of the One City, One Book uh, project. Uh, now, on my right is Andrew Nagel, uh, author of Kill All Normies, and she's going to explain uh, the, the title of that book in due course. Um, and finally, we have Neil Meehan, uh, Head of Journalism in Griffith College. Now, just to explain the, the format of the head school, for those not uh, familiar with it, my job is to ask our panellists uh, difficult questions for your entertainment. Not totally though, you are expected, like any school, to do a bit of work, to pay attention, sit up straight in your seat, and even ask a question or two, or make your own contribution. Uh, and that can be at any time in the debate, so if you feel, if you disagree violently with something said on the panel here, don't keep it to yourself, put your hand up, and we will bring you uh, into the discussion. And remember, all of this is being recorded, so keep it clean. Uh, now, Censorship. Um, yeah, yes, I, 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 yeah, as, as the head school master, I'm a great believer in censorship myself. Uh, we, we'll get on to that shortly, right? Um, you know, what's the difference between editing and censoring? That's a question I'll try shortly. This one for you, Neil. Um, no, I want to go to. I want to get back to the the the, um, the book in, in question here, the books rather, the the Edna O'Brien books. Mary Kenny, how, how should I put this delicately? You would be you don't an, have to an, an eyewitness account to all of this. Yes, yes, uh, I know. Uh, so you, you, yeah. you would be in a child, child prodigy at the time, no doubt. Uh, no, just, just give us the, especially for the younger people in the audience here, um, um, you know, just give us a flavour of the times here. I mean, was this big news or was this just well, one of those things people accepted? I mean, I was still just about a schoolgirl in 1960, although I was just about to be expelled, of course. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, uh, the, the Irish censorship boards, uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. The Irish dated from 1929, and in fact, 
at that period, it wasn't unusual. To, it, it was backed, the notion of censoring evil literature, as it was called, was backed by the League of Nations in 1923. And the Irish, they went to some trouble to research Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Great Britain and the United States, France. Um, and it, it was kind of, it was an accepted thing that some literature could deprave and corrupt. And so, you know, there was, um, the, it wasn't abnormal to have censorship. But Irish censorship, for some reason, grew worse after the Second World War. And it, it really reached a peak in the 1950s. Why this is, I don't know. Maybe the literature became more explicit. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of myths ab about Irish censorship, like that Ulysses was banned. Well, Ulysses was never banned in Ireland. And the reason, probably, that Ulysses wasn't banned was that it cost 25 shillings, which was the, um, more than a week's wages for a working man in, in, at that period. So it would be like something like three or 400 euro. Um, and actually, at the famous Lady Chatterley's Lover trial, about which I've written, I've got a text if anybody wants it, um, that was one of the, the snobbish things that came up. I mean, one of the uh, prosecuting lawyers said, you know, we wouldn't object if this book was 10 guineas, but unfortunately, it's three and sixpence, you know. And um, so that was a, a, an element in censorship, and in, who was, who was a, it was a class element. And who, but anyway, it, it did grow worse in the 1960s, and then in the 1950s, and then 1960, the very year we're talking about, was the year of the Lady Chatterley trial. And that was a huge thing. That was very, very big news. And it did really, um, you know, really reset the whole uh, situation about, you know, reading who, who was allowed to censor and who wasn't allowed to censor. And of course, Penguin, it, Penguin won that case finally. and they. They were allowed to publish uh, Lady Chatterley Loves. Terribly sad in a way because people had read Lady Chatterley Loves for the dirty bits. And poor, <laughs> poor D.H. Lawrence had written it in 1928 trying to explain that sex was beautiful and clean and wonderful and uplifting and we shouldn't regard it as dirty. Um, and and so, so, in fact, he was rather thwarted. And all sorts of Church of England bishops came into the witness box and said, yes, it's beautiful and clean and it's an act of communion, said one of these, one of these bishops. So everybody thought that uh, lifting censorship would mean everybody was much more high-minded and so on, but uh, things don't always work out like that. So that was the year that uh, Edna O'Brien's first novel uh, was published. And uh, the, really, I urge you to read her memoir because it's very, very good about this. Um, and actually, if you read the book now, it's actually extremely decorous and it's really quite uh, gentle and shy and everything like that. But it does give you a picture of Ireland at that time. Yet the, what I would like to know, and there's a real piece of investigation, is who submitted the book. Now, the, a, a book could be banned in Ireland either because the censorship board said it was against the law, and that usually meant either deprave and corrupt, or else it meant contraception and abortion is advocated in the book, or else it could be submitted by two people to the censorship board. In 1960, no books was actually banned on the initiative of the censorship board. The tide had turned by 1960. So somebody submitted Edna O'Brien's book.
through the censorship board. So, so give me that, Mary. So this was a busybody's charter, right? It was. Uh, well, you could really? yes, you could um, say that, um, and and uh, it could be anybody. And there were a lot of uh, uh, library committees, a lot of. Uh, ladies' library committees who were um, very vigilant about uh, depriving, de de depraving and corrupt. And there was a sort of Irish, uh, you know, going back to the early days, the 1900s, and of, of Douglas Hyde and the early GAA, there was this kind of idea that Ireland should be a kind of pure and holy so country. So censorship so, patriotism then? Yeah, there was an element of that. There was right. an element of, 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 of a puritanical form of feminism as well. Um, and there was also a church element uh, of the Church of Ireland as well, often supported uh, these things. Um, and so, but in, in one year, for example, which is 1953, which was the apex, it was the worst year for, for censoring, um, 838 books were examined by the censorship board. And 640 of these were prohibited. But 603 of the prohibited books had been submitted by outside people. By, and I, I, have a, you know, I have a hunch, I don't know, but I'd like somebody to do the research, that um, because Edna really refers to this fact in her own memoir, <coughs> that it was the people in her local Townland and County Clare, and particularly the women who called her a bitch and a trollop and all that sort of thing, um, because she writes about getting involved with a married man. I have a feeling that it was possibly people in Scarif in that area who submitted the book because they felt she kind of brought shame on them. I don't know, but I'm just reflecting on what her own uh, 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 her own ideas were about uh, um, uh, about who disliked her so much, and she found this local local people. So that is the. But no book was in 1960 was actually chosen itself by the censorship board. So that's so, so that's the picture of it. Would it be the case though then that Irish writers were more likely to be banned because it was closer to the bone? In other words, it, 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 they gave a more accurate description of what. Irish society was actually like. Well, not only that, Tommy, but I think, you know, and sometimes I thought about this as a writer in a much more humble way myself, but um, there is this thing of shaming your family. And um, the, or, the authorial voice in The Country Girls, in The Lonely Girl, the first novel, she paints her father as an absolute brute, you know. A, a, a drunkard and a, a man who says she wants a good beating and uh, just because she wants to leave home. And there might be, you know, local feeling can be very sensitive in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So there could be an element of that. I'm just the same thing with, with Frank McCourt's um, Andrew's Ashes. You know, yeah. that's, not, that's not too long ago. Yeah. You know? And even, even earlier, really. in 1918, Lindsay McNamara writes this great book at the Valley of the Squinting Windows. And it's about a fictional town. He picks Gary, Gary Drimner as a name. It's going to be anywhere, Gary Drimner. And it's a town where everyone is deeply obsessed with the business of everyone else. You know, we all know places like that, don't we? And uh, that book is burnt on bonfires in the town. And the line that's used all the time is, he's brought shame on his family. And do you want to come in just on the theory of censorship here? I mean, what, what, were, what, was, what was attempted to be, a, to be implemented here with this sort of censorship? Your opinion? Well, I mean, state censorship, even then, but it's much more so the case now, is in a way the bluntest and least effective form of censorship. Um, like today, you know, 
the, the easy takeaway from you know this subject or from your exhibition and everything is kind of that was you know the, the the distant past that was like old Catholic Ireland now we're enlightened we wouldn't do things like that anymore but um, today you have you know the, the real force of censorship is actually Amazon in terms of books um, and and the other force of censorship the, the modern equivalent or the contemporary equivalent of the busybodies um, charter is like Twitter, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, the intensity of um, the intensity of the social and intellectual conformity that is constantly managed by social media platforms is so great that I, you know, that there's no need for state censorship anymore. Okay, but I mean, so you, you, what you're suggesting is that Twitter is a bit like the person writing the letter back in 1960, right? Except it's, except it's far more it's far more efficient and, and, and yes. bigger volume, right? But also the, the political ideology that dominates has changed. But is it, can I just sorry? I'll bring you in, Neil. But just before, in case I forget it, I remember uh, Brian McMahon, the writer, again one of these um, RT history documentaries, saying that when it came to the the, the, the reporting of, of books deemed to be dodgy, he said it was the Catholic laity that were the I mean, the, the church itself just sat back and let this uh, let this happen, you know. Yeah, I think, um, whereas the point about the impact of censorship was that Ed O'Brien in a certain sense was lucky because um, in terms of the impact of censorship, uh, it wasn't as effective in the 1960s because people had an alternative means of getting information, and that was through television, and it was a period of social change. Whereas uh, O'Brien's, Ed O'Brien's career thrived, the people who came before uh, pa uh, Patrick Kavanagh and Flann O'Brien, their careers uh, were blighted by censorship and they were embittered. And that was a period of extreme social control where people, the people you heard from, the busybodies uh, or the, uh, the laity who were the ones who uh, were the moral police or the lay moral police from the church. And still, to a certain degree, they carried on that role, particularly during the 1980s. Uh, they were the ones who were sending in the books to the censorship board. They were the ones who were uh, policing society. But the church had um, control of large swathes of uh, social and economic life, uh, education, health, welfare, and so on. And so, uh, from the top down, there was a system of control which started to break apart in the 1960s, so that uh, uh, with television, you had Edna O'Brien was on RTE. Uh, RTE broadcast programs about her. They rebroadcast programs that the BBC had made about her. Uh, she was, uh, as her book implies, a country girl. People uh, related to her. And th gradually throughout the 1960s, the system of censorship broke down. And uh, the reference made earlier to the fact that the class element, they wanted to control uh, novels because they become cheap, but then they were much more easily available to people. Um, one of the things I did as part of my homework for today is I went back and looked through newspapers from 1959-69. I didn't look at the Irish Times deliberately. I looked at, uh, it's easier to do nowadays, it wasn't a huge effort, uh, because you could do it uh, um, through the Irish newspaper archive. Uh, and I was surprised at how little antagonism there was to Edna O'Brien throughout the decade. Whereas you could, you might get one or two letters from the busybodies. There was only one real, one article attacking her for being somebody who was somebody who was betraying her country because because she was uh, attacking Catholicism. But uh, even in the, in the in the provincial newspapers, you had people like John Healy uh, uh, condemning censorship, Pontius Bacchanesa 
in the Kilkenny People, Munster Express, uh, and articles about O'Brien visiting Ireland, uh, the Limerick Leader, uh, the Clare Guardian, and so on, um, demonstrating that uh, there wasn't a general antagonism uh, toward her within the population, and that was diminishing throughout the 1960s. And in 1966, there was a big meeting in Limerick, which was regarded as a highly prudish place, a uh, place where the church was in control. Uh, it was held in a hotel, huge meeting. And during the meeting, the chairperson asked, how many people in this room have read Ed O'Brien's books? And the vast majority of books I haven't, so they read them. That was in 1966, when all the books were banned. And also, she benefits, sorry, if I may say so, as well, from the celebrity factor. Yes. She became a celebrity. Edna was a very pretty girl. She was very televisual. She was glamorous. Her own memoir talks quite openly about all the, the movie stars she knew and so on. Uh, so I think that that, you know, in, she was televisual and attractive in a way that, I, may I suggest, Paddy Kavanagh and Miles Lugopoline <laughs> were not. Miles Lugopoline on the Irish Times was the most bad-tempered um, an old character that you, so you, interviewed, you interviewed a few weeks ago and you lived to tell the tale. Just, like, just to come in, as eight, fill, eight, us, fill us in though. Late 80s and still flirting with every man in the room. Yeah. But that meeting in, in Limerick that you mentioned there, Father Peter Connolly, who lectured in Minute, uh, stood up and he said, actually, these books have great uh, merit as works of literature. And he talked about it in particular the way they talked about nature, and he talked about great value in her writing style. And he said to her, these books aren't immoral, they're amoral. I don't know how she felt about that. But you know, it shows that there was even a diversity of opinion in the Catholic Church on her work. The problem with the, the censorship of publications board, I think the biggest problem with them as a body is they're not obliged publicly to say why books are banned. And they're banning books wholesale. And again, this point has been made now by, by other panelists that the people kind of push for censorship all the time. So in the 20s, the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins, famously the man who said that the Irish were the most conservative people who ever had a successful revolution, he believed that the rules around censorship were just fine. And because of pressure from Catholic organisations, the Committee on Evil Literature was born. And they actually recommend the, the establishment of this, uh, this censorship of publications board, which has two uh, religious representatives on it, one from the Catholic Church, one from the Church of, from the Church of Ireland. And the amount of books they ban is absolutely staggering. Six, 1,600 books banned in the first 12 years of the censorship of publications board. So doing the maths on it, they ban about three books uh, a week. And who of us can read three books a week? You know, never mind the books that they read and said, those books are fine. We don't need to ban those books. So if they were reading three books a week that they thought deserved to be banned, how many books a week in total uh, were they reading? Well, one of the problems, I think, is that they're not obliged to list the reasons these books are banned. And sometimes we can tell when the means Borsal Boy is banned uh, in 1955. Brendan Behan rejoices in that. And he writes this great little ditty, my name is Brendan Behan, I'm the latest of the band. We're the best band in the land. You know, it's fine for Brendan Behan. John Littlewood is putting his plays on in London. He has a career on Broadway. Behan has an international stardom that other writers don't have. Nora Holt, for example. I hadn't even heard of Nora Holt until Sinead Gleeson really rescued her uh, from an obscurity that she didn't belong in. Nora Holt was a brilliant Irish writer who had 10 books banned. And for someone like that, it could have a real effect on your, on your living. And Sean O'Fallon, one of the great heroes of the battle against censorship in Ireland, he says that when he heard one of his books was banned, he said, outwardly, I pretended to be happy. I pretended to laugh. But inside, I was absolutely shattered uh, and, and humiliated. So for, for some writers, it could really affect your living. And the fact that they didn't even have to publicly say why they had done it, that was an absolute disgrace. So can, can, can we lay to rest then the idea that, that having a book banned was a badge of honour? It, it depended on your, I think it depended on the international standing of the author. You know, if you were able to make a good career abroad, 
as someone like Brendan Beaton was able to do, <coughs> it was a badge of honour. And uh, to a lesser extent, even Sean O'Fuelan. But for, for, for writers like Nora Holt, I think for female writers in particular, actually, it would do great damage uh, to your career. But, it, it, yes, uh, Angela, yeah. I noticed one of the titles that was on it was A Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, so that was very interesting to me because I was thinking, actually, you know, if, if it is the case that a lot of the motivation behind the censorship was that they wanted to protect, you know, the nation from, like, a, a, a kind of moral decline and, mm. and things like that, I mean, it's very easy to read Brave New World as a very conservative mm. novel, in a way, or with a conservative political message. I mean, it wasn't um, a celebration of the sexual revolution at yeah. all. So that's a really interesting thing, because what that shows to me is that when a censorship regime starts to ban things where they don't even understand the work they're banning, yep. that is a, a regime that's in a kind of intellectual decline. Absolutely. You know, There's ten winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature on the banned list, including two Irish authors. The Catcher in the Rye, which later ended up on the Leaving Cert, is on, is on the banned list. <laughs> and there's um, an article in 1968 in the Nationalist and Leinster Times on the law and censorship in Ireland. Unfortunately, the author's name isn't given, but I think they, it makes the point. It says, um, all products and publications which even delicately smacked of pornography were banned. <laughs> Unfortunately, the system set up to wash the soul of Kotsi de Hulahan didn't know genius from a jackass, art from ignorance, nor B, which I take it as bullshit, from a bull's foot. <laughs> and this guy, uh, he said that um, he, was, he lived in London and he was about to come back to Ireland. And he said, when I was living in London, I heard a great deal about Ireland's long list of banned material. But I was not too concerned as long as I remained in England. When I was returning, however, I was preparing to take my fairly sizable library with me. Uh, uh, I wasn't a student. Apparently, if you're a student, you can apply to the Minister for Justice for a book on the basis that you were studying it. But I wasn't a student, neither did I know anything about permits from the Minister for Justice. On inquiry, however, I was advised to go to the Irish Embassy to be instructed as to which books I could take with me. I was, this is it, finally, I was issued with an incredible list of names, titled and publishing firms, and on checking them with my own library, I found that I had been reading practically nothing but pornography. <laughs> I, think, I think it was actually, Angela, W.B. Yeats who coined the phrase, the tide of Anglo-American filth, mm. which is washing up on our shores. Well, <clears throat> that was in the 1900s. Yeah. But of course, and don't forget, there also were the lady inspectors of Dublin theatres, they were very, very vigilant as well. Um, Ch according to Edna's own memoir, um, Charlie Hawkey de described her book as filth, her first novel, which is amusing coming from Charlie Hawkey. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but uh, I, I did wonder afterwards, <coughs> Charlie brought in, you know, this special uh, tax regime for writers afterwards, uh, which actually exempts creative writers, not poor non-creative writers, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, uh, from, from tax. Um, and I wondered if that was his apology for, the, his, for that. The point about the embassy might make me laugh, but it is important to say there's a pitfall, there's a pitfall you can fall into very easily when you talk about censorship in Ireland. And that's to say, we were this awful Catholic backwater and the rest of the world must have been laughing at us. They had censorship everywhere. Yeah. I mean, behind the Iron Curtain, there was a great poster. Uh, if, if Beckett was born in Czechoslovakia, we'd still be waiting for Godot. Uh, we never banned Ulysses the book. We banned the movie in 1967. What a great movie that is. Joseph Strix was a masterpiece. In Italy, they didn't ban the movie, 
but they showed it in segregated cinemas. Women sat on the left and men sat on the right. So that's ridiculous. So other people could be as ridiculous as, as we could be. Censorship, you know, there, was a uniquely, there was a uniquely Irish censorship, which I think was obsessed with matter sexual, but censorship itself was not uniquely Irish. Mm. Neil, can I bring you in there, uh, up to the period we're talking about, the 60s, right? Mm. Was there political censorship as well? You don't hear so much about that. We, we, we will hear about it later, but up to the 60s. I mean, was it purely about sex, basically? Oh, no, the censorship was purely and totally about sex. Um, it didn't, uh, even for, you know, supposedly Catholic country, there was no censorship of anti-Catholic literature. Mm. So, um, and there was no particular interest in... The, the, the criteria were... Um, uh, obscenity and promotion of so-called artificial methods of birth control. Yeah. Right. Um, in and abortion, of course. Hmm? And abortion. Yes. Anything that mentioned okay. abortion. Would yeah. Be and so that was uh, that was what the obsession was about. Now we used to think that the church, uh, the Catholic Church, was obsessed about that because uh, they were starved. But perhaps not so. I can say that so easily nowadays. But in terms of political censorship, uh, there wasn't uh, political censorship to that degree. Yeah, right. There's rare examples I could find. Like, if we looked at the li list of books that were banned, Liam O'Flaherty, the first, the first author, Irish author, banned by the state, Liam O'Flaherty, The House of Gold, great book. That's set in the west of Ireland, and it has your Gombean priest, and it's really a critique of the free state post-revolution. O'Flaherty's a founding member of the Communist Party. He's a political radical. He's seen as subversive. I think probably O'Flaherty... He might be, um, Sean O'Casey to some extent as well. And O'Casey revels in it when he has a book banned. He writes a play called The Bishop's Bonfire, which includes a bishop showing evil literature onto a bonfire in rural Ireland. But they're exceptions. So Flaherty and O'Casey are exceptions. And you're right, it's mostly it's a moral question. And I think, I mean, Sartre, for example, was originally on the Vatican Index uh, as being a, 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 this was, and indeed, uh, his ideas were dangerous to Christianity. You, can, you, you, could, you could make out a case for that, since existentialism was, uh, in that sense, rather nihilistic. But it never appeared on the bound list in Ireland. Because again, nobody, the la little lady in the, in the library uh, uh, committee in County Mayo hadn't read Lettre and Les Néons, or, you know. So <laughs> I hadn't heard of it, maybe, and she didn't submit yeah, it. Yeah, in terms of, um, you know, censorship, O'Casey's play was banned during the Untustal Festival in the early 1950s, and that was because the organisers of the festival foolishly wrote to the Archbishop of Dublin asking him to bless the festival. And they should have known, of course, he wouldn't. Now, you can contrast that with the late 1960s, I get the date here again, 1969 Cork Film Festival, a film scripted by Edna O'Brien was to be shown, Bishop Lucy wrote to the organisers and asked them not to show it, and they said, sorry, we're showing it. Mm. And he went yeah. uh, quite ballistic. But that just, I think, again indicates uh, the decline in the influence uh, of the Catholic Church during the period. Do you think, um, O'Casey was, of course, a communist, and uh, wrote very adoringly and, uh, uh, about Stalin mm. in, the, in the Daily Worker. Did that weigh at all? Uh, you know, was that a factor in, the Catholic, in his being, uh, you know, yeah, the, disparaged, so to speak? Uh, the Catholic Church uh, was obsessed with communism. Well, Stalin um, was doing a few things which weren't very nice. Yes, they were. Like killing about 20 but they were, people. But, but the obsession with communism, for instance, um, uh, John Charles McQuaid was a pen pal buddy with um, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. And he used um, all the priests he had to spy on what was going on in local working class communities and sent priests into areas in order to uh, prevent or repress 
any kind of left-wing organization. That was his big opposition to the mother and child scheme in 1950 and 51. So, uh, of course, O'Casey would have been uh, in McQuaid's sights for that reason, but it was more in the context of uh, O'Casey's uh, uh, views of Catholicism, I think, that would have been more overtly. Um, McQuaid was quite clever in a certain way, and you can see in his uh, biography by John Cooney, that a lot of the time he would tell priests they were foolish for stating what they were doing. Uh, they said you should do it quietly, it's more effective, more effective that way. Papers are amazing, aren't they? No one could write a political uh, or a social or cultural history of this country without getting deep into uh, McQuaid's papers. And some of the stuff you find is really strange. The letter from a, a sociology student in, U in UCD saying I've been asked to read and write about Karl Marx, what do I do? He says, read, read the books and then get rid of them. And, and, and of course, um, so, uh, um, Kavanagh, of course, is, is simultaneously being banned and also being, being subsidised by McQuaid. For, you know. But the obsession with people's lives is extraordinary. There's like reports from vigilance committees on nightclubs in Dublin that are being written to McQuaid. There's one about the Palm Court nightclub and the, the vigilance committee member says it was 100% teddy boys and teddy girls. It's just mad obsession with the, with the private lives of of citizens and every aspect of life from, from the Yugoslavian football team to the Connolly youth movement to RTA presenters, McQuaid was watching and obsessed with everything. It's important to point out though that it wasn't a totalitarian society, so in terms of the Yugoslav match, thousands went from the yeah. point of view of, of showing that they weren't going to be prevented going to watch a football match and I think right from the particularly from the mother and child scheme when that was defeated, which was an attempt initially to bring in a sort of uh, welfare state uh, in Ireland, or free, free medicals, uh, free healthcare, uh, when that was defeated, that built up opposition, which built right through the 50s and 60s. So you had this undercurrent of uh, opposition building up, and uh, the, the church eventually, it was a bit like King Canute, it was kind of keep the tide out. Uh, so I think uh, in the mid to late 60s, a uh, government minister, Jay Brennan, said, uh, we need censorship, but we're losing the battle. So they knew that they were being less and less effective, and they were losing the popular audience. Angela, yeah, do you want to just twin on that because you, you yeah. in the social, yeah. Well, yeah, what I was thinking was what you said about, you know, we need censorship in a sense because we're losing the battle. It is, that's why I was saying it's kind of the most blunt instrument. It's, it's when the culture is already slipping away from them, this is a, a, a kind of last-ditch effort to cling on to it. Um, but the other thing is that in terms of like why do they censor, you know, all of these characters you're describing are very unsympathetic to us now, looking back. You know, we can't imagine kind of being in the mind of either the busybodies or the state censors. But the thing that, if you try to, to, to see it from their perspective, maybe, the thing that they were trying to stop from happening has happened. Like, at, you know, and many times worse, actually. Their worst nightmare of what the future would hold if, if people were allowed to have sexual freedom and so on, has, has come to pass and then some. So, you know, the, the, it, it's simply that, you know, wh the reason we're unsympathetic to them is because we disagree with them politically. In other words, if we're unsympathetic to them, it's probably because we think that those changes are positive. So, so what I mean by that, though, is that most of the time, our, our view of censorship is actually not principles. For most okay. people, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's simply yeah, because yeah, yeah. we're sympathetic. No, because to I was going to outcome. ask you about that. I mean, there is censorship happens today. You cannot, if you said said the N word, the famous N word, in, in the public realm, you'll never work again. That's the just end of story. You know. Um, 
Well, there's this thing called entitlement, you know. Um, but, but, but there are lots and lots of restrictions on freedom of speech today. Uh, they're all, we think that these are just decent laws and decent regulations. That's our attitude. Maybe in 50 or 100 years' time, they'll say, what kind of crazy people were they back then that they were trying to restrict language or, 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 or saying that, you know, uh, I mean, feminism, for example, is, uh, you mentioned Catherine McKin McKinnon and, and, uh, and Andrea Dworkin in your uh, very interesting book. Um, trying to restrict the pornography that's on every teenage boy's mobile phone, apparently. Um, so does it, is there a parallel today with, with, with what we're trying to censor? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely just as pro-censorship as these people we're describing. Like, as a society, we still are just as pro-censorship. And in fact, I, for the last while I've been in the States, and you know, it, however bad it might be anywhere else, over there right now it's just reached a total mania where there is now an entire, you know, section of the media that just dedicates itself to finding, you know, like a chef somewhere who did a racist Facebook post or a sexist something or other, you know, that like, so there's a whole industry around that. So uh, the book that I wrote, you know, ha is, I think it was the first book to come out, which was a could you explain the title, by the way? Sorry, I want to kill, kill all normies. Yeah, it's just, it's not an instruction, obviously. It's a, re it's a reference, to, uh, it's a reference yeah. to an expression in the forums that I was describing, the kind of political forums that I was describing, where they're hostile to outsiders to the subculture, basically. So it was about politics as a subculture. Um, but what was I saying before that? Um, what were you saying before that? No, but, but, oh, but, yes, but, no, but they, they, yeah, the, the culture of, of censorship yeah. today. So, so for example, um, so initially I, I was one of the first people who was writing about the emergence of sort of far right internet subcultures and things like that. Then it blew up because because Donald Trump got elected and, and lots of other things. There, there was like street movements, uh, far right kind of street protests and stuff like that. And then this this whole section of the news media blew up where. There's now like a beat, you know, where you just write about, and it's literally gotten to the point where the most ridiculous one that I saw that made me really think they were scraping the bottom of the barrel was one article called um, "The Alt Right Are Taking Over Renaissance Fairs," <laughs> which is a very low-stakes uh, culture war, you know. But the, but there's also, you know, ones like some a journalist will find, you know, there was one where it was a woman who was a chef who believed in a conspiracy theory, this QAnon conspiracy theory, and it, it was this article like naming and shaming her and her family, and she just believed in a kind of dumb conspiracy. Uh, you know, so anyway, the point is that we believe in censorship more, if anything, than we used to. Um, it's just the political ideology has shifted. But I mean, if you look at some of the stuff, you know, um, on the net and in the political realm I'm talking about now, mm. I mean, one of the problems with the internet is you will get, absolute streams and most vile uh, lies, like just straightforward lies, uh, no connection with truth whatsoever. And they take on a life of their own and they're, and they're being read by people who only read those lies. Uh, they don't read other people's lies. You know, no, but it, it's an extremely dangerous situation in the sense that you do the echo chamber effect where people are just talking to themselves after a while in a narrow, a, a, a more and more narrow uh, framework. 
And then, as you say, anyone then outside that is just to be, you know, exterminated almost. Like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, really, I mean, you wonder, especially the racial stuff, it, it's getting down to the level of seeing people as vermin, you know. It, it's, it's, so, I'm thinking, look, this is, well, there's an argument for censorship. Well, yeah, you know? well, this is why I think censorship, this is why I think we're more pro-censorship now than, than we have been even in the recent past, because the chaos of the internet is so terrifying and so destabilizing. Um, you know, and it's very difficult to know even, you know, that there's many different directions that it's being pulled in. Um, you know, but I think even if you think of something like, um, you know, there's been a huge social media corporate, like, clampdown on, on, for example, Alex Jones, this, uh, like, conspiracy theorist who had a website called Infowars, and, it, you know, it had lots of social media accounts and so on. And it was a massively popular uh, conspiracy theorist um, website, and, um, you know, people, uh, it, it introduced a level of chaos uh, that, you know, meant that people were, you know, sympathetic to social media corporations coming in and just getting rid of it. And he was just wiped off of YouTube, Twitter, a whole bunch mm -hmm. of them, kind of more or less uh, in one day. And now the thing is then, who is going to defend Alex Jones? Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of the things that, if, looking back at the kind of censorship that, that you know, um, we're talking about like great works of literature, like we, and we can say the world is better off for having been able to read these things, but when it's just absolute garbage, yeah, <laughs> with yeah, no, yeah. Like, Neil, no literary value. What are you teaching your students down in Griffith about all this? Well, um, I was thinking about uh, the discussion, and I'm just thinking about you know, the tradition in politics of preventing uh, fascists from mobilizing, preventing the far right traditionally from mobilizing, preventing them from going into areas and beating up people, preventing them from um, attacking people based on their skin color and so on. Uh, and one of the effects of the internet is that uh, the ideology of, um, the, of the far right of fascists uh, has moved very effectively into the, uh, onto the internet and uh, our ability to combat that um, is, um, is more difficult today. Uh, and it's also moved into mainstream politics so that uh, ideas which we would have regarded five, ten years ago uh, as being um, uh, uh, extreme uh, are reflected in the President of the United States, they're reflected on the, uh, in the attitudes of some of the people who are arguing for Brexit in Britain, uh, and they're, they're moving on to mainstream platforms. Get hungry? And hungry, yeah. India? It does I mean, show the power, uh, to a certain, well, to a large degree, uh, of um, means of communication, uh, and the, how effective, and uh, uh, how they can mobilise people and they can mobilize prejudice, uh, means of communication can mobilize prejudice just as much as they can mobilize uh, insight and knowledge. And so it is a very difficult area. Um, and in terms of censorship, um, free speech uh, has never been absolute. For instance, uh, I doubt if it will ever be normalized, uh, something, something like child pornography. So that is uh, absolutely banned today. But there was a movement there to do movement. so in the 1960s, PIE, yeah, of which Harriet Harman was a supported it at the time. And they presented a very reasonable case, actually. They said, look, sexual liberation is in the air. Why should we deprive people who are attracted to young people? Why shouldn't they be sexually fulfilled? That was the argument they put forward. Yeah, and, then, and it was and actually people like Mary forward? Whitehouse who yeah. started to say, yeah. this isn't on. But they so, stopped putting forward as they were arrested and went to jail for abusing children. Um, I've, do, I've done some research into that. and. Uh, uh, that, that organization, PI, disappeared by the beginning of the 80s. 
uh, as an effective means. They did propagate the idea that children had sexual rights and they had a right to exploit children. Of course, Freud had that idea. And um, uh, they, um, a lot of those people, there was a a guy called Morris Fraser, he was a psychiatrist in Northern Ireland, and he was um, convicted of uh, abusing children uh, he brought from Belfast to London, uh, uh, in, in London in 72, and he remained in his job. Yeah. Now, one of the differences, that could, couldn't happen today, but effectively, that, at that stage, the RUC in the, in the North did not tell his employer that he'd been convicted of child abuse. Uh, nowadays, because uh, of our heightened awareness of child abuse and child pornography. Again, uh, in a certain sense, there's a negative aspect of the internet in the sense that it's much more, it's much more uh, prolific on the internet. But we today are much more aware of child abuse, uh, its prevalence in society, uh, and uh, aware of who perpetrates child, uh, child abuse. Essentially, men in every sector of society. Or a certain, not all men, but a certain sector of men, and it's very prevalent in the churches and in areas where children are uh, the under the control of adults. Is, is, so we're more aware of that, because that, that's brought in far much more stricter regulation in terms of the control of children and access to children and information about children uh, and what you can and can't say about them on the internet. So that, I think, is a positive, something positive, and that is a restriction on freedom of speech. Can I just ask a question here about, about, about the internet and social media? Um, I mean, it's a new medium, yeah. right? Uh, is it going through its early phases? Like, will it settle down in some way? Because I'm thinking, say, of the printing press. Mm -hmm. uh, because when people read stuff back in the 16th century, if they saw if it was text and a picture, it was true. Yeah. yeah. You know, I remember my, uh, Helga Robinson Hamsey, my early modern lecturer, making this point, which mm. just, you know, like that at, at that time, it was so innovative, so new, that if you saw it, that it was there in front of you, it was true, right? You know. Now, obviously, over the, over the centuries, decades past, and you know, you don't believe what you read in the newspapers, you know, whatever. Uh, people have a critical attitude to it. It, it, it. Can that happen with the internet? Forms of maybe, regulation, maybe Andrew, you on this one, but I'm suspecting because of the way of the technology of it and the way they. they it, you know, they, they fire stuff at people, you know, you, you get what you want kind of thing. Is, is, it, is it reformable or uh, uh, amendable? I, um, yeah, uh, I mean, to some extent they already have, and they've actually been very successful. I mean, remember that the internet is, you know, it's often portrayed as this, like a wild west or something, but it's actually the most dominated by monopolies of any sector of culture that's ever existed, probably. Right. You've got one big bookseller, got one big search engine, you know. Well, that's so really on. scary. That's yeah. a really scary thing then. And so, so the point is, I guess, the, the question we're asking is, what is scarier, the chaos of the internet, right. or them having total control to, um, you know, engineer it in whatever way they want? And that actually is a genuine question, because the chaos of the internet is actually quite terrifying, you know. Um, we know that it can ruin people's lives, and there's all kinds of, um, uh, you know, very kind of sinister things can manifest there and so on. But, uh, but uh, there's another aspect to it as well, which is that, as I was kind of saying at the beginning, um, I think the biggest problem right now actually is a general uh, enforcement of ideological conformity that happens totally voluntarily by users online, like, by, by, like on Twitter and on, on social media and so on. Um, it's not being enforced by the state. It's not any of that. It's, mm. it's um, 
uh, people willingly, you know, going on and banding together to get someone sacked or so on. Yeah, I, I had, you know, I have to say I had a bit of a taste of myself, right? Um, now I'm not going to go into the substantive issue, but it is uh, quite an, an interesting thing when a petition has gone up against you, you know, for something, you know, that no sense of proportion whatsoever, <laughs> um, and also a, a internet abuse and whatever, you know. So that, that was quite an, an eye-opener for me, and I just thank God I don't do Twitter normally, right? I, I stay steer well clear of it. But I have to say, in my naivety, um, when I think about History Ireland, uh, which has been going, you know, since 1993, um, I'm very keen that it be a forum for all, uh, a, a huge variety of views. And the reason I know it, has, it gets a huge variety of views is I get the letters from people saying, this is the second time I've cancelled my subscription. <laughs> <laughs> I framed that one, I framed that, I love that, I love that letter, I didn't frame, I should have framed it. No, but the idea that it, it, it is, it is uh, the idea to have a forum for discussion that's open and that people respect and so on. I'm not, I'm not plugging the magazine here, but just, the, the, I'm, drawing, I'm drawing a contrast with this other situation where people are just talking to themselves. No, and this is very, this is very admirable, Tommy, because one of the most important ways of maintaining freedom is maintaining diversity of views, really. And it's diversity of views that, that keeps freedom, intellectual freedom going. It's, as Angela says, once you have monopolies of any kind, and I suppose what happened in Ireland was that there was, an, a, if you like, a monopoly of authority. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's what caused uh, this sort of overstepping of what they thought was kind of social controls. Uh, uh, but I mean, for, I'll give you an example of um, people, I mean, some of the, what's going on in the internet is, a, is really a new version of the Agatha Christie poison pen letters, you know, people mm. denouncing you, uh, but from behind an anonymous um, yeah. hashtag. Uh, and you have the example of Martina Navratilova, who made a speech saying she didn't think that uh, the transgender issue was fair to women players. It wasn't fair when transgendering males were playing against women because the transgendering males still had male musculature and, 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 and uh, greater firepower and so on. Um, and she, she got something like, I don't know how many, but she got thousands of abusive uh, tweets because of that. And I mean, he, this is a gay woman who had really stood up for women in, in tennis over, over years and years. I just look, I think one thing that's happened in this discussion, and it kind of always happens when we discuss censorship in Ireland, is that we swerve between two very different kinds of censorship, which is kind of cultural, literary censorship, uh, and, and political uh, censorship. And that, I think, is, as a historian, that is the part of the story that hasn't really been written yet. Like we, we talk about how oh, in the late 1960s, you know, people like John McGahar and Edna O'Brien managed to bring down the censorship regime in Ireland. But we talk about political censorship today and how bad things are in places like Hungary and the United States. Can you imagine a system like Section 31 anywhere in the world today? Right. There's an extraordinary history of political censorship in Ireland. And even when the Censorship Publications Board lost their power to ban great works of literature, they were still banning other things, you know, magazines like Spare Rib, feminist magazine in the 1970s was banned. So it's very easy to look at the rest of the world and say, oh, look how terrible things are, censorship in America. Section 31 in Ireland in the 1970s to me is, is one of the great disgraces, one of the great black stains uh, on this state of that today because of diversity of, of broadcasting. Mm. It was because RTE had an absolute monopoly. Mm. That was why. Yeah, that's why um, Section 31 was brought in in the early 70s because uh, television was seen as such a powerful medium. And uh, television was, uh, you know, it, it had a, na a national audience. 
and what the government set out to do in the early 70s uh, was to break up discussion uh, in relation to the conflict in Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, it was extremely successful, um, initially under Fianna Fáil, uh, and they sacked the RT authority in 1972 and caused a RT journalist to be uh, sent to jail for contempt, but extremely effectively under another O'Brien, Conor was O'Brien, when he was minister from 73 to 77. He was extremely effective, uh, and he would have been one of the people who would have uh, been in favour of liberalisation in the 1960s. Um, and he spoke about Ed O'Brien, but uh, uh, from 73 to 77, he did something that uh, not only did he strengthen Section 31, make it much more rigid, although he said he was liberalising it, but he also did something that ministers prior to him didn't do. He went into RTE and he demanded of RTE that they sack certain people uh, and that they discipline them, whereas previously a minister might make a statement or might talk to the chairperson of the authority. But O'Brien went into the RTE and ironically the first person he demanded to be sacked from RTE was Owen Harris, <laughs> who ended up 25 years later as his main supporter. Political censorship probably wasn't mentioned at all in this discussion, interestingly, is the, the, the ridiculous blasphemy law that we have in this country. There was a 40th anniversary of, of Life of Brian this week. I think it's extraordinary that that blasphemy uh, law made into the Constitution was there, and it was there for a brief period of time, but that it got there at all. I, do, about the I don't think there's a man, woman, or child in the country that didn't actually get to see that film <laughs> uh, within the year of it being released because it was banned. Does anyone in the audience want to come in? I'm just taking a look at the time here. The discussion is, is far too lively up here. Right? So, um, um, yeah, if you, we have the mic here. If you use the mic. <coughs> Um, I'd just like to take advantage of my age for the moment, because I was around for some of this. I was around for some of this stuff. Uh, I have in my hand at the moment a, a piece of paper entitled Censorship of Publications Act 1929-1946, and it says, The Minister for Justice hereby grants to Mr. Paul O'Dwyer, which is me, 34 Church Road, Ballybrack, County Dublin, this permit to import one copy of each of the following prohibited books. Candy by Terry Southern, the Dark by John McGahern, 1984 by George Orwell, and Barstool Boy by Brendan Behan. Now, Neil made reference to the, the student exemption or the student way of getting around uh, the censorship. Uh, I had put in previously for a search for another book, which I got. I put in for this one here, picking these as four examples of different types of sectors, if you like, that are that came under the, 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 the censorship thing, and I was refused. So I went to my local TD, who was David Andrews, and he took it up with Brian Lenehan, who was the Minister for Justice. Brian Lenehan said, give it to him. My arguments were that um, uh, it was for a religious discussion group, which, <laughs> which it might well have been, but it might not. And secondly, that um, we were entitled in a democracy to study the institutions under which we lived and censorship was one of these institutions. I think that was probably the one that, that got it. So fortunately, uh, Brian Lenehan uh, then sent all the correspondence back to David, to David, and David didn't know what to do with it, so he gave it back to me. So I have the whole correspondence there. Now, um, Mary mentioned Lady Chatterley. I was working in Jersey during that trial, and needless to say, I was down to the 
down to the shop straight away and got a copy, which I had taken from me in uh, Dunleary on, on the way back. And uh, I got a note from Customs and Excise uh, shortly after that, which scared the wits out of me because I thought, this has been a big trial in England. I'm the first person to have it confiscated here. What do the, ma what, what the mammy think if we all end up in court? But it was for a totally different matter. Um, uh, just mentioning a trip to London in those days was a mortal sin if you didn't bring back a dirty book with you. I mean, no, but I'm serious. That, that's, quite, that's quite serious. And um, the, the other thing is there was an informal, uh, informal layers of censorship as well. And John Charles was part of this. Um, Charles Davis, who would now be classified as a dissident priest, and Gregory Baum, who was an adventurous theologian, if you like, <coughs> uh, were both banned from this diocese. And Noel Brown was banned from UCD, uh, again, as stuff emanating from the palace. In UCD, in my day, there was a book called The Irish and Catholic Power, which was written by a Northern Irishman. In the, uh, he was in the States, and it was sort of Irish Paul Catholic. Paul Blanchard, I think. Pa Paul Blanchard, what did I say? Sorry. Paul Blanchard, yeah. And, and Orange, uh, sort of literally anti Well, it, it, yeah. this is, this is a, that's an interesting thing yeah. that you say. It depends on when you read the book, I, I would suggest. No, I, I'm, I'm serious in this. Um, to get, that book was in the library in UCD, yeah. right? To get that book from Mary Ellen Power in the library, because it was up on a high shelf, you had to get a note from your tutor. And I was doing politics and I got a note from my tutor, who was Morris Manning, whom I thanked publicly recently for, for giving me the note. Now, I read that book. I thought it was an absolute disgrace. It was a bitter diatribe against the Catholic Church, right? So that, that's what was in my head. In recent times, I have got a copy of it, um, and I thought it was a brilliant book. <laughs> uh, seriously, I, it was well-researched. The points were all points that I would have made myself, and like it was me, essentially, that, that, that had changed there. And I just say that book burning is not out of date. Sean Fagan wrote a book about what, ha what happened to sin. Um, the Vatican, the CDF, didn't like it. And they got the Rosminians to do something about it. And apart from silencing that man, which was an absolute disgrace, they, they got the Rosminians to do something about it. And the Rosminians went around and they bought up every copy of the book in town and they burned them. And that's a recent thing. But I was very uh, encouraged when I went to the, the internet to see that the, the Dublin library system had copious copies and they still have them. Thanks. Well, That's exactly what happened with Arthur Kessler in Darkness at Noon when he published that. The Communist Party went around buying up every single copy and burning it. And he was delighted because he got more revenue every time they bought. Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> Just an anecdote, but you talk about the fear of having a book taken off you when you come into the country. Edna O'Brien pulled a great stunt and it made it to the front page of the newspapers. And she arrives into Dublin Airport in December 1966 and she's carrying her first five books. Yeah. And the Irish press has a picture of her standing there with just the dust jackets. You know, the books are taken off her. But that was a brilliant stunt in terms of putting uh, public, public attention onto, onto the issue. Just, can just get, before the discussion finishes, just how did this censorship end in the 60s? It more or less did end. What, I mean, who, who, are the, who are the heroes of this, or heroines? Well, that's important. Like, there are heroes in this story. And there's heroes going back. Senator John uh, B. Kane is really in, in their side uh, in the Shannon. John Kane, brilliant yeah, yeah. voice in public yeah. life. Shannon Fuelon and Padre O'Donnell in the yeah. Bell as well. Like, there, was a, there was a very good literary 
culture in this in and this actually, country. But actually, Lenehan, Brian Lenehan, senior, he was quite decent, and he was basically, you know, uh, I I think I remember talking to him about this because his his folk folks had been school teachers, you know, so he was quite cultivated, mm -hmm. and he didn't have an obscurantist view really, and I think he was quite enlightened. Uh, as he moved towards, but basically, uh, it just tapered off, didn't it? Really, I think, I think, as the 60s went on. But the out, there's, the there's outrage over yeah. the dark, and I mean, McGahan, I know there's issues in McGahan's personal life at play too, but I think the primary reason McGahan lost his teaching job was the dark. And then the following year, you get this great meeting in the Gate Theatre where you have Brendan Kennelly, Michal McLeamore, uh, Edna O'Brien. It, it's a who's who, really, of Irish cultural life, and apparently, 300 people are turned away from the gate, they just can't get in. And they formed this thing called the Irish Censorship Reform Society. And by that point, I think, people like McGarren, he took censorship to heart. He was, he, he was a broken man, I think, with, with the, the, the scandal around the dark. O'Brien, by comparison, and some other people fought, and they fought very publicly. And once you have the likes of the Censorship Reform Society, and people like Edna O'Brien that wouldn't get back into the box, I think they opened up this great dialogue that ultimately... Yeah, but it helped if you were, if you were an, ex an exile abroad, presumably. With a global audience, like being <coughs> earlier. But then you get the reform laws in 67, where books can only be banned for a period of 12 years, and they retrospectively uh, enforced that. So thousands of books suddenly come onto the bookshelves in 1967. And it, but I think like, the, 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 the hero of the story, or one of the heroes of the story, is very much Edna O'Brien, because of the manner in which she refused to take it lying down. Donald, just a quick question. Is it possible to view the submissions, you know, to the censor? Uh, we had a panel discussion last week in, in Street Library on this, and Tom Quinlivan of the National Archives said that the National Archives have actually acquired the Censorship and Publications Board uh, archive material. Yeah. So that might take a lot of, God help them, we don't need to build a new National Archives. <laughs> Think about the amount of paperwork involved. It will be in future. It will be in future. I was just wondering, was there any uh, anti-treaty um, censorship? Yeah. I didn't hear that. Uh, yeah, anti-treaty censorship, yeah. I mean, political censorship. Oh, there was, uh, during the, during, I say during the Civil War? After. After the Civil War, um, I think censorship uh, eased off in the course of the 1920s and 30s. Mm. Um, uh, I think it was very heavily enforced. Um, during the war of independence and the civil war, but after that, I think it eased off. I think the main problem was that uh, people who were on the on the Republican side, people like the current president's father, uh, found it very hard to get jobs, yeah. uh, and uh, a large number of people emigrated and uh, were embittered by that at the time. Uh, but the um, censorship, I think, as we've emphasised, um, it was a kind of takeover by it was a means of social control. Uh, uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, because well, again, well, because the state didn't have a rep <coughs> the Republican badge of identity was contested. So the state had an unstable ideology. So it needed something to congeal things together. Uh, it was conservative economically, and the church was part of um, a group that ruled. Another part of the group that ruled was essentially the Protestant business class as well, which were very strong. Um, and uh, that group uh, more or less held Irish society together up until the late 50s, early 60s, really consolidated during the protectionist era. Uh, yeah, we should uh, make that point as well, that Ireland was regarded as insular. Uh, there was very little connection with the outside world, economically, socially, and every other way. And uh, censorship seemed to be tied in with the ideology of society. 
that we needed to do everything for ourselves and keep out so-called foreign influences. But in fact, the influences were indigenous, so they and were... It was, of course, reinforced during the Second World War, yeah. when our Irish political censorship was stronger than, I think, stronger than any other neutral country, actually. Mm. Uh, and and uh, Frank Aiken took it upon himself to censor uh, personal, uh, personal little memorial uh, notices in the Irish Times because they might refer to uh, a son or a husband actually dying uh, in, in, in... We should in make conflict. that qualification, obviously, but censorship. There was extreme censorship during the Second World War, so that... Uh, Which you can still listen to the BBC in the Irish World Service or whatever. I mean, my father, you know, he, he listened to everybody. William, you know, Lord Awe, yeah. uh, BBC, and RTE. But in the Irish Times, when uh, somebody who had worked for the paper had been killed, or sorry, had survived uh, his ship blow, being blown up in the Royal Navy, uh, Smiley put in that, uh, uh, referred to so-and-so's later, later uh, his earlier boating accident. Uh, <laughs> it does well, that, yes. You mean like the, the IRA in Irish society? In the 20s and 30s, the IRA launched this ridiculous campaign uh, in Dublin where they go after cinemas. And they bomb a number of cinemas, uh, including the masterpiece, which was up at Conestry, for showing World War I films. So, Mons, The Battle of the Somme, Epe, these are all just propaganda films, basically, World War I films. Yeah. But the IRA bombed a number of cinemas showing them uh, and threatened uh, cinemas not to show them. So, that's a form of censorship. It's not just the state, there's political censorship too. And then, of course, De Valera became very tough with the IRA, didn't he? And he did execute, uh, he did execute uh, Republicans, and I suppose that all added, indeed, to the, to the sense of uh, one party. Not one party, but, uh, but one class, are you saying, Neil, that the, uh, the sort of bourgeois class um, really ran Ireland from about the 20s to the 60s. Is that what you're saying? Are they, are they I think they run everywhere, don't they? But, um, uh, yeah, well, essentially, uh, uh, it was a very controlled society. Uh, and uh, it was because republicanism was regarded as being a destabilizing influence um, that uh, particularly the working class had to be controlled. And they were controlled to the church. And they were controlled in, uh, uh, in a very authoritarian way. If we think about the system of uh, detention in, in various... Um, um, facilities run by the church, by the churches, uh, and uh, which were much, again, lasted longer than existed in other societies. Now, just before we run out of time, I, I just want to finish, or, or come to the issue of um, the defamation laws here, Neil, because uh, this seems to be a, a, a major, you know, it is a, a problem. Uh, one of the things about this jurisdiction is unlike the neighboring island, uh, when it comes to defamation, you don't actually have to prove that it damaged the person. <clears throat> You know what I mean? So, uh, in my case, for example, the first thing the, the, the defamed person did was to go on social media shouting, I've been defamed! I've been defamed! You know, which I found a bit odd, like, if it was so damaging, why did you do that? Uh, so, whereas in, in, in the UK, you have to establish that what was said actually damaged the person. Of course, that, that puts in the, the onus. eyes of right-thinking people, yeah. I believe. Right. Is the phrase. But also, here you don't even have that. You know, so, a libel doesn't have to be untrue. It can be true. As long as you are um, uh, taking away somebody's character, yes, you can be libeled. Um, and, of course, uh, we know who is very keen in the society in, in, in protecting his good name is uh, somebody who's a major shareholder my, my sometime in, the main, employer. in the, main, the main newspaper. So, uh, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, <laughs> The defamation laws uh, definitely do inhibit uh, what people can do uh, in terms of investigation. Um, 
and in terms of, we talked earlier about the about, uh, regulation of the internet, uh, possibly through breaking up the monopolies, if that's possible. But that's still necessary in terms of newspapers as well. I'm sort of getting away from the point. But um, uh, defamation is certainly uh, uh, an area where um, uh, it prevents proper investigation uh, of the powerful in our society. But I mean, the money, the money, and it's yeah. a, a tool used by the powerful because those who aren't powerful aren't rich enough to be able to defend their, own, their good name. Yeah. And it's is, much easier to defame people who uh, are not, um, uh, who haven't got great wealth. Is there any factor that Irish juries are inclined to award very large sums of compensation in some cases, for example, in um, insurance cases and so on? Is that a factor in the, in the libel laws that people are hoping for compo? Uh, okay, in my opinion, the reason, uh, uh, insurance awards are so high. I don't think they do, it's to do with libel. Insurance awards are very high in Ireland because people have to pay for medical care. Uh, insurance awards are lower in Britain because people get medical care for free. So uh, if somebody suffers a, a lifelong debilitating effect of an injury, then that has to be paid for, and they've got to pay doctors who are quite well paid. So, yeah, in terms of defamation, uh, it is said in Ireland that uh, taking away somebody's good name is historically one of the worst things you can do. So perhaps that's a reason why um, uh, defamation awards uh, have been high historically. I do note that uh, Dennis O'Brien lost his last case. Um, so sometimes uh, a trend can develop in which uh, people take a, uh, in which a jury takes an attitude either towards newspapers or towards those taking cases. Just, Andrew, to go to you on this, I mean, one thing that strikes me about this is that the bar for defamation in the print media is so low, as I discovered myself, whereas on the, on the uh, uh, social media internet, it's, it's, you know, every person for themselves, like, absolute unspeakable levels of abuse. Like, there seems yeah. to be a huge dichotomy between what's said anonymously on the internet and what, you, what can get you up and before the beak, like, for, you know, upsetting Dennis O'Brien. Yeah, the law is definitely not caught up with the technology. I mean, anything that's likely to appear in the newspapers, even the worst stuff, is probably not going to be as bad as what is, you know, now just completely standard uh, online. You know. I, I would be interested in hearing some views from the panelists about the impact of and the effect of Rupert Murdoch on the whole area of control of information and censorship, and um, you know how that impacts on, um, you know generally public affairs? Well, uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, has always been a highly political proprietor. And again, it shows the, uh, he understands the power and it shows the power of information. Uh, he uh, picks winners in countries where uh, he runs newspapers and he, uh, in terms of political parties. And he, at the same time, ensures that they are um, um, favourable towards his business interests. So, uh, Murdoch supported Thatcher right through the 1980s, uh, then supported John Major for a while, and switched to Tony Blair after the Labour Party changed its policy on monopoly ownership of media and cross-ownership uh, of satellite broadcasting and print media. So, um, uh, he interferes in the Yeah, and his Fox network in the States uh, is very much uh, an instrument for promoting right-wing ideology. And uh, in terms of television, breaks down a traditional view within television and a traditional public service ethos, which is to a large degree imposed by governments, which is that news and current affairs have to be fair and impartial, um, 
and objective. And there's a loose that uh, that was very much loosened in the states, and that's what allowed the Fox Network uh, to emerge as a as a fourth network in the states. Uh, and so the Fox, Fox Network has that slogan, "Fair and, and balanced," which means unfair and unbalanced. But it certainly it does show that again the power of information uh, and the power of control of information uh, and its use uh, to promote one one point of view. I think Tommy referred earlier to in the internet people stick to uh, one set of ideas. It's the same in the states. People stick to they watch Fo the Fox Network and nothing else. Just, sorry, could you just use the mic here if you're yeah you won't catch on the on the recording. If you just let back in there briefly. Sorry, I, I just um, was saying that it's a deliberately perverse influence on the, on the, the body politic, um, not just in the United States now, but of course across the globe. And, you know, there's a, there, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of protest about that kind of, um, yeah, as I said, perverse interference. But uh, if, if from what Angela's saying though, Murdoch is in the happy place compared to the big internet giants. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of ownership, sheer quantity. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about how RTE had this monopoly of, well, it, that also gets more complicated when you think about it, because when I come back here and I see RTE, I feel like it's like an oasis of calm. It's like <laughs> so balanced yeah. and it's, everyone's just calm on it and everyone's kind of, you know, the, of course there's bias, right? There's always going to be, but there's some kind of basic idea that if you have been biased, you... You, you are contradicting the kind of ethos of your profession. In America, it's just screaming all the time, multiple channels, not just Fox, CNN is completely unhinged. I mean, like, you know, it, it's, it's a 24-hour cycle. The liberal and the right-wing media, it's all corporate media, there's not even a, a pretense of trying to be unbiased. They're there as a propaganda outlet. And so, for example, I mean, you know, as bad as Fox is, um, uh, you know, something like uh, CNN, MSNBC, those kinds of things, they, uh, they're doing a, a constant loop of um, Russiagate and now it's Venezuela, we have to invade Venezuela, it'll be somebody else next week. It's like the, the neocons have really moved into the liberal media sphere now and it is a constant... Um, you know, a war drum basically over there. Now, okay, we can disagree on or, or agree on the, the, the particular kind of, you know, um, uh, political views that are dominant in either of those channels, but uh, in a weird way, the, 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 the dominance of the public broadcaster in Ireland, I think is actually less bad than the situation you have there, where there is no, there, there is no standard at the center of society against which you can be either right or left or something else. Instead, uh, you're either a person who watches Fox or you're a person who watches CNN or, or something like that. Yeah, so the traditional uh, model of media freedom is the market. Everybody can go to the market and they can say something and people can choose or not to listen. But essentially, with uh, modern mass media, there's monopoly ownership. It's, it's almost impossible for uh, newcomers to get into various media markets um, unless they themselves have extremely deep pockets. So um, in Irish newspapers, it's uh, unless you're coming in from Britain and already are very rich and powerful and set up an Irish subsidiary, it's almost impossible to set up a new newspaper. 
uh, exist in other media markets as well. So for, that's why forms of regulation are necessary. It's necessary in newspapers, it's necessary in the internet, but again, who does the regulation and what form does it take? Because from the point of view of governments usually, uh, they're interested in patrolling information in their own general interest. That's not to say party interest, but their own general interest. After all, wasn't it King James set up the Royal Mail because he wanted to read it? So uh, governments like to be able to control generally what's going on. Uh, but the alternative, you know, on the one hand you have that, on the alternative you have this so-called market free-for-all, uh, which is uh, essentially means whereby uh, in the internet, uh, large companies make large amounts of money built on a model with employing very few people, uh, but the reg increasing regulation means they have to employ more people, and perhaps that will, uh, uh, that will encourage more professionalism, perhaps that will break up the companies, perhaps, we don't know. Now, anyone else want to come in before we, we, we wrap up? Um, yeah, yes. I'm just wondering how you all feel about, you know, students in universities refusing to have speakers talk in the universities on topics that they don't, they don't appear to approve of, and the, the person who has been invited to speak is then banned, cannot address the university. That is something that has uh, developed. Uh I'm not so aware of it uh, so much in Ireland, but I know it's been a feature of university life in Britain and also in the States to some degree. Uh, and uh, sometimes it takes the form of uh, no platforming. And it, uh, somebody mentioned earlier, Martina Navratilova, Germaine Breer had problems getting speaking rights in various universities on the basis, as you said, uh, nasty things about transgender people. And uh, in that circumstance, uh, personally, I think that's a mistake. Um, but then there are other areas where people mobilise against people like uh, David Ir Irvine, who uh, essentially promote uh, hatred of people of different sk skin colour, and people mobilise against fascists. Um, I would make a distinction. Uh, quite how I'd make the distinction is sometimes difficult, but I would make a distinction. But surely you have to respect what George Bernard Shaw said uh, after Voltaire, that I, I uh, you know, I... Um, deeply disagree with your point of view, I'm paraphrasing, but I will f go to the stake to defend your right to say it. Freedom, do freedom has to mean the right to offend as well. And it also means uh, uh, you have to listen to fascists as well. They are just as entitled to have a point of view as anybody else. I mean, they're not as entitled, they're not entitled to promote violence or dis disturbing the peace. But if you start repressing even f uh, uh, attitudes that you dislike, that is, uh, uh, that, uh, that's kind of inviting um, another reaction. Because there's no free speech in fascist societies. So <laughs> well, uh, one, one of the problems on, on, on the internet is, though, that if, if you, I mean, if you say YouTube, right, you, you, some racist thing, right? The point is, all the comments are going to be just racist. I mean, you're not going to jump in, oh, I'm going to sign up here, I'm going to, I'm going to sort this guy out. No way, like, you know, you just leave it well alone. And this is the problem, Mary, that, that, that I, I agree with you in principle what you're saying, but the problem now is you don't have uh, lies, vile, you know, anti-this, anti-that stuff. It has not been interrogated, you see, that's the problem. 
So, do you know what I mean? I, I take your point, right? But in practice, Angela, am I right? That's not what's, what happens on the internet quite often. Once you get just again a reinforcement of a prejudicial partisan point of view, I get over and over again, you know. But if you have enough diversity, surely at the end of the day, uh, there will be, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but there will be cross-examination, there will be inquiry, if you have enough, if you have enough freedom and diversity. If you try to have a conversation about these really, really difficult subjects yeah. um, on YouTube, in a YouTube comment thread, that's just going to be a yeah. disaster. Nobody, there's not going to be any good faith, intelligent discussion there. Whereas there could potentially be in a university. So, I mean, you know, I think that's exactly the place where mm -hmm. freedom of speech should be protected because, you know, people have to obey. When people are there in real life and they can't be anonymous online, they have to obey some basic rules of respecting other people and, and things like that. I tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, I, I'm going to wrap up here, right? Um, and I just want to give a plug for the next, uh, the next uh, meeting here. Uh, Writing Women, Society and Sex in Ireland. That's a sure panel winner. Uh, panel discussion on Saturday the 13th of April at 12 noon here in the National Library. Can I just finish up, um, and I want to bring in this whole the question of, which might seem unrelated to this discussion, the question of um, the study of history at the junior start. Uh, one of the points that's rarely made, and one of the reasons why it is absolutely essential that it be retained uh, as a subject on the junior start, is that it gives people the, the, the critical faculties actually separate the, 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 the dross from, the, from the, the nuggets in terms of what's real, what isn't real. Uh, I think it, it would be futile to think we can censor the internet now. I, I think that that horse has long bolted. What we have to do is we have to equip our young people uh, with the necessary tools to be able to investigate these things for themselves. Absolutely essential. And uh, it's, it's what we're about in, in History Hour magazine and in these little forums we put together. And I'd like to thank you all for coming along here and participating in this discussion. And in particular, our panel, uh, Neil Meehan, uh, Angela Nagel, uh, Mary Kenny, and um, uh, Donald Fallon. Uh, so I'll see you at the next Head School. Next Head School, by the way, is in Belfast, in the Lynn Hall Library uh, at 7 o'clock, uh, a century of women. Uh, and then the next one after is in Cork. This is like, I'm like a show band. <laughs> I can't go to the next town. I have to go to the other end of the country uh, at 3.30 in the afternoon in Cove. Uh, we'll be looking at, we'll be discussing the, the, the proposition, uh, the Irish Revolution, local or global? Question mark. So it'd be great to see some of you there. Or maybe see you back in the, the National Library next time we're back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.